The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So most of you hopefully understand, tonight is week six of our eight-week class. That means we'll have small groups for the last 20 minutes or so. And uh, part of what we can talk about in these small groups and I'll reflect on together is, you know, we're using this convention we call the precepts. It's part of the medicine that our doctor gives us. This is something that was used, an image used all the way back at the time of the Buddha. The Buddha as a doctor who was able, through his, you know, just persistence and the kind of care that he brought to his own experience as a human being to resolve his problem, evidently, and had the capacity to articulate, understand that whole healing process, spiritually healing process, so that he can offer some medicine to us. And the medicine comes, you know, it's three types of medicine, the medicine of wisdom, the medicine of samadhi, or learning how to unify the mind, settle the mind, stabilize present moment awareness, and the medicine of sila. And uh, I was reading an article by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, a Western monk, and he was uh, just reflecting how in Western Buddhist circles, you know, people who've been meditating for a while and really intent, really dedicated to the meditation practice, but still finding life difficult and needing other modalities to deal with the predicament of being a human being and having a mind and a body and a human life and all the complications. And uh, who knows if this is true, but what um, Ajahn Tanisaro was suggesting is that sometimes people aren't using all the medicine that the Buddha offers, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm, I'm going to meditate, but I'm not going to put as much of my heart, my heart energy toward the practice of sila or samadhi or wisdom. We tend to like have our favorite and hope that the rest will somehow figure itself out. But of course it doesn't work. In the same way if we had another kind of illness, you know, we have to do what the doctor tells us, the people who've really studied the predicament that we're in, how to get out of it. And so are we interested, are we curious enough to be devoted to the practice of sila. And what does that look like? How do we do that? And how do we use like the convention of the precepts? Undertaking the training not to harm, not to steal, not to cause harm in our sexual relations, not to cause harm with our speech, and not to cause harm because we've intoxicated the mind. We've, you know, caused the mind to become dull or not clear, intoxicated. 
And to really bring, you know, our whole heart to that practice, not, because we tend to, yeah, either, you know, we've been talking about either we think we've already, or pretty good, Because if we are pretty good, it should be a real cause for joy. That, that's how we know it's good. It's a sustaining joy in our lives. When we go to bed, when we wake up, when we walk into a room, when we meet new people, when we're, when we're around old friends. It's like a palatable sense, like my heart, this heart, can be trusted. I can trust my heart not to do something stupid or unskillful. We really embody this teaching on karma. Some of you know this from the, the last, the fifth of the five remembrances. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma. Remember, karma means intentional actions, right? quality of the intention behind a thought, behind some words we speak, behind some action we do. I am the owner of those intentional actions. I'm heir, I'm born out of, I'm related to, I abide supported by my intentional actions. Whatever actions, thoughts, words I do with intention, I shall, whether for good or for ill, that, of that I will be the error. Thus I should frequently recollect. What am I setting in motion? Is this what I want to set in motion? That's what it means, you know. Sila means bringing mindfulness to the quality of intention and motivation. And sometimes we don't really know because intention subtle. You know, and we are pretty good at lying to ourselves <laughs> and each other. So sometimes we don't really know until there's a real mess and the heart hurts. We feel guilty or we feel bad about something. And then we might trace back, you know, using our memory, what was my motivation? What was I thinking? You know, where, where was my head when I said that thing to my friend or I neglected to say something, or I did that thing. Oh, oh, I was ignorant. Or I was identified with that aversion, or I was identified, like last week we talked about sexual misconduct. And it feels, from my experience, pretty easy, you know, when I'm in the vicinity of some of the pleasure that can arise in sexual interactions, right? it's easy to lie to myself because I really want something to happen. And, uh, you know, we're really good at justifying and shaping the meaning of what we think's going on to fit the liking, the what I want, what I like, what I want to happen. That's one of the reasons that uh, sexual misconduct gets highlighted is because it can, you know, just the way we're conditioned, there's a lot of pleasure, there's a lot of 
desire, desire isn't bad, sexual desire isn't bad. It's like, I think I talked about, it's like the electricity of life. It's just there and we have to deal with it. We have to learn to live with it and embody it and understand it. But because it's so, it can be so enlivening, you know, we, uh, and I think in part because we're hurting in life, you know, we become even more in need of these enlivening energies. I came across, what is that? Oh yeah, Cam sent it to me, Cam's here, yeah. Great article. We've been, a uh, few of us, uh, because Cam sent it to us, have been looking at uh, this uh, person who's written about how to be a skillful man or how to be skillfully masculine. And uh, his name is Robert <laughs> Masters? Robert Augustus Masters. And uh, what was that book that you lent us? Um, to Be a Man. To Be a Man is one of his books. And this is an article, Eros Undressed, Freeing Our Sexuality from the Obligation to Make Us Feel Better or More Secure. And he makes this point, you know, just about culturally now, you know, especially compared to how we usually understand the past, just seems like sexuality is more out in the open. Maybe it's safe to say less reserved. Um, but he makes the point, and I'll just read, just as being openly angry doesn't necessarily bring us any closer to truly knowing our anger, being openly sexual doesn't necessarily bring us any closer to knowing our sexuality. And then this is the, the point I wanted to bring out. He says, or he writes, an essential step to bringing sex fully out of the closet is realizing, and not just intellectually, that the greater our investment is in distracting ourselves from our suffering, the greater our craving for sexual arousal and release may tend to be. And it's not just about sexual arousal or release, but basically anything that we're attracted to, anything that's enticing, anything that has the energy of desire. And desire with attachment comes with that promise that somebody is gonna get something. And when we're in that pursuit of getting what we want, we have a little distance from feeling what it feels like to be human. So, a lot of the suffering that gets set in motion because we're not paying close attention, we're not choosing to cultivate a moral sensitivity, is we don't really, we don't feel like we have the capacity to feel, to be open, because it, it hurts. It's confusing, it can be heavy. 
And like I mentioned in the guided meditation tonight, you know, can we value that sensitivity? So even in the relatively safe confines of sitting still in a quiet room at home or here at Kamagura Meditation Center and meditating and just being interested in like really taking care of myself. Okay, I'm just gonna, I have one responsibility. Right? There's only one thing in play. Stuff is happening and I'm relating, I'm knowing the stuff that's happening to some degree. And how I'm knowing matters. Am I knowing in a kind and generous and clear way, in a way that's in the direction of release and ease and settledness? Or am I relating in the way, what, what is in the way of agitation and getting more and more bound up, more and more stirred up, more and more locked down? And it isn't like we have to even figure it out. It's simply tracking cause and effect, really. And it isn't even that we have to then draw the conclusion, oh yeah, that's unskillful, so I need to get in there with a scalpel and remove that habit. Knowing that it's unskillful, knowing that it leads to suffering, already undermines the tendency. It's like, I don't know, most of us probably did our driver's ed, and back when I did it in the 70s, you know, they made you watch movies or documentaries that included car accidents. I don't know if people remember that, if they still do that. It may not be as politically correct <laughs> to do it these days, but you know, you'd see like, the mutilated bodies, to some degree. I mean, it, was, it wasn't terribly graphic, but it was pretty clear, like, when you drink and drive, this is what happens. And just trying to scare the teens, mostly, just, you know, to avoid that. Or, you know, like the anti-smoking. Sometimes they'd show the, the sort of dissection of a lung of somebody who'd been smoking for decades to kind of convey that. And in a sense, the sensitivity, the moral sensitivity, not just to our own actions and thoughts and words that we speak, but also in a non-judgmental way to everyone around us. You know, these morality plays, each of our friend, each politician, each celebrity is one of these sort of Greek tragedies of sorts, right? And we see cause and effect. Oh, you know, like our friends who are in a relationship with each other, you know, have a partner. And we observe how they treat each other and how they honor the precept, I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. And because we're close friends, we kind of have an inside window. And we see the justifications and the and we see what gets that emotion, and because we know the person well, we might even sense, even sometimes what they themselves don't sense, like what a burden that choice seems to be on their heart. How do I sense it? Well, they can't really be honest with themselves. I know what it's like when I've been lying to myself, 
not honest with myself. And I know how much psychic energy it took to keep that, you know, that sort of lack of self-honesty in motion. So we, we get the sense, everything, like uh, Sayadu Tejaniya, one of my teachers from Burma, says, you know, everything is Dhamma, everything is teaching us. We have, our job is to let life, nature, our experience teach us, because it's teaching us. If We just have to be interested in being a good student, an interested student. So in our small groups, you know, these five precepts, it's as uh, I think I linked um, Ajahn Sumedho's chapter in his book, Chitta Veka, Viveka, uh, one of his early books, and uh, he has a chapter on sila. And he talks about religious conventions, like if you don't have any doubt, if you're already outside the prison of your own, you know, our own delusion, then maybe you don't need these religion, religious conventions like undertaking the training to refrain from harming, undertaking the training to refrain from stealing, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm in our sexual activities or relations. And, and so on, with our words, with our use of intoxicants, including media as an intoxicant. So these conventions, like using it, getting up in the morning and saying to ourselves, going through the five precepts and resolving, yeah, I do undertake the training not to cause harm, not to take things that haven't been given to me. We're creating like the context for interest, for the mind to be interest, because we've made the resolve, you know, it's going to stand out when we do something that's causing harm. Wanting to crush that mosquito or whatever it is. Oh yeah. Or wanting to take something, or wanting to say something to somebody, a little snooty, you know, I mean, I, it's really interesting people who do customer service work because clearly, you know, our interactions with large organizations, corporations can be totally frustrating. I don't know anybody who hasn't had one of those Kafkaesque sort of experiences where you just get the runaround and it really seems like it has been designed to torture us. Um, and then you finally might, if you're lucky, get somebody on the phone. And because it's been so unpleasant, right, there's a very, when we're hurting, there's a very strong desire to make somebody else hurt. And these customer service people, you know, it's, it's got to be its own kind of hell realm to have to work in a job like that, where people that they have to interact with have gone through this torturous, experience just to even get to speak to them and are just waiting to vent, to be snooty. So it's a really good place, wherever that is, where you've waited a long time or you've had a frustrating experience. And of course, this person we're talking with, whether it's the clerk at the store or somebody on the phone or, you know, you don't even know sometimes whether it's a person or a computer algorithm that you're interacting with these days are getting better, right? But it just feels so appropriate 
to let them be the receptacle of your hostility, your anger, your being upset. Like that's, that's what's called for. And it's, it's really great when we take this, take up the precept not to harm, and the fourth precept that we'll talk about next week a little bit in more depth, undertaking the training to refrain from falsehood, speaking false or false speech, but also hostile and harsh and slanderous, using words as a weapon, or even idle speech, then, then it's, it can stand out like, oh, and what does this set of motion, what good does this do being snooty or impatient? Because it feels like uh, so easy for me to justify, even in subtle ways. Like I, I tend not to, you know, do anything, like my words are generally pretty good, but I just notice this more subtle, like the tone of my voice. Like, why is it important that they know that I've been suffering? Like, we have to be really honest with our motivation there. What good does it do them or me to make sure that they know how frustrated I am or how unpleasant that was for me? Because that's causing harm. You know, when we do that unconsciously, and the thing is we will do that unconsciously, when we're hurting, when there's a lot of aversion, we strike out. That's what the heart does. Sometimes we strike ourselves, we turn inward, and beat ourselves up in one way or another, or we take it all on our partners, or on our pets, or on the customer service people, you know, and if we t turn it inward, it's often like that's the contraction, energetic bodily contraction that we carry along with us. And the Buddha says this right at the beginning of the Dhammapada, this famous collection of verses. This is Gil Fransdahl's um, translation, very famous opening verses here. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, right? a mind under the influence of greed, hatred, delusion. And suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, Speak or act with a peaceful mind, non-greed, non-hate, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. They abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. They abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. Those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. 
And we could say the same about greed. Greed never ends through greed. By non-greed alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. Now, of course, it, it is a little confusing because it seems when we really want something, it seems that getting it <laughs> makes greed end. For a while, right? We're, you know, sated, we're gratified, and there's less greed for a while until we want something more, something different, something better. We've all had a lot of gratification, maybe even sexual gratification. Are we done? <laughs> Anybody done experimenting? And uh, it's really important to uh, yeah, just get the sense of how we're creating the world, like that fifth remembrance that I read earlier in the evening, born of our karma, abide, supported by karma, whatever karma action I shall do for good or for ill of that I will be, that's what we are. There's this great line, again, from Tani Saro on this topic. He says, this is the short, he's talking about relationships. My relation to you is determined by the things I have done to you and that you have done to me. We're related not by what we are, uh, by what we inherently are, but, but by what we choose to do. You know, when we think about our relationships, it's the cumulative effects of the quality behind the thoughts I thought about you and the words, the motivation and the intention behind the words that I spoke to you and the acts I acted toward you. That's what we really relate to. That's what that passage means. We're really, like when we have a relationship with another person, we're actually in relationship to the karmic fruits of our thoughts, words, and actions related to that person. Unfinished business. <laughs> I'll go home and see Wynn later. I, she might be watching now. And, uh, you know, and we'll be, you know, our karma will be having a relationship you know, the unfinished business. Because ultimately it isn't even about so-called good karma. It's about relating without leaving any trace. That's the sort of higher aspiration. First, decease, creating heaviness in our interactions with each other. So we have a heavy and heavier burden so when I see John, you know, all of a sudden all this luggage <laughs> is on my back. All this unacknowledged, unfinished, whatever, remorse, desire, what I want from John or from somebody. So first we stop adding to that weight. That would be our first step. And then, and then like creating something so it's delightful. It's like we see our, our beloved 
you know, generally there are your dogs that have been bred for thousands and thousands of years to have unconditional love for the people that are, take care of them, <laughs> you know, and will have, you know, a nice relationship maybe most of the time or some of the time. And uh, it can feel, when they're cute and young puppies, right, like really clean until it doesn't. But ultimately we want relationships where it feels, it's not even, uh, we're not trying to create a thing of beauty in the relationship that we are in awe of or delight in, feed on, oh, I want to see this person because we have a good time together. There's no baggage there. We just have fun, you know. I, we think about that sometimes in terms of sexual relations too. It's like this <laughs> ideal. Because I don't know if people noticed, but in the, the, the Thich Nhat Hanh's comment, one of the things that catches people's eyes that some people might think is a little dated. You know, there's a few sentences that we put under each of the five precepts that are from Thich Nhat Hanh, this wise Buddhist monk who died uh, a few months back. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I'm determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. So that sometimes people tell me that that's a little dated. Like, why not sexual activities without love and commitment? And, uh, and that's a kind of ideal we can have. Um, you know, just relationships, sexual or not, that are um, like no obligation, no stickiness, no need for commitment, just let things rip. But the, the problem is, like I mentioned a little earlier, we bring to every relationship a lot of karmic reverberations. I mean, that might be the theoretically, the Dalai Lama was asked that once in terms of a teacher-student being in a sexual relationship, you know, where there's such a big power, power differential. And he says, is it ever possible that that could happen without some harming? And he said, well, you know, maybe theoretically if the person was so advanced in their practice that they can eat feces and urine. <laughs> you know, like be so uh, beyond the sort of normal sco scope of human conditioning i.e. not us, or at least not most of us, right? Or any of us. So we, the, the idea of highlighting intoxicants and speech and sexual relations is because we all have a lot of wounds and baggage in these places where we're exposed and intimate words cut deep because genetically, we're social beings. For billions, or for sure mil millions of years, humans have survived and are 
predecessors on the evolutionary, you know, you know, our evolutionary lineage have survived in groups, social groups. So the way that we relate and belonging, you know, and the trust and kind of letting others in, like letting what they think and what they say in, so it matters. <laughs> you know, we expose ourselves. It's like when we watch our primate and our uh, relatives, you know, being intimate with each other and picking the lice out of the fur and exposing each other to each other, exposing ourselves to each other. It's like a way of, uh, that's what speech does, you know, when we're talking and we're in conversation and then somebody's really sarcastic or somebody, you know, makes a joke that just is really inappropriate, offensive in some way, just like misreads the situation, it can really hurt. And we know this, I mean, people who are in a, like a sibling, you know, where there, there's a lot of support, cultural support for that relationship to hold together, don't speak to each other for two decades or something like that. That's not that uncommon because of words that were spoken. So just to have that as we move, as we develop our moral sensitivity, just almost as if we had uh, x-ray vision. So as we are in a social situation, interacting with another person in a morally sensitive environment, which is almost all the time, because, you know, we're in relationship, even when we're alone, we're in relationship with ourselves. And our words, our thoughts, like what we're thinking and saying to ourselves, that matters. And what we're doing matters to ourselves, even if no one else is watching or seeing. So to have x-ray vision, so we're aware of the of the karmic reverberations, the woundedness and the sensitivity, how easy it is to cause harm. Oh, I want to be careful here, not to add more woundedness, more, you know, not to remove scabs that don't need to be removed or poke here where people or I'm sensitive. And, you know, part of our social dynamic is to know each other's weaknesses. That's partly how we feel safe. But there are ways to be sensitive to each other's and our own vulnerabilities without poking at it so that the person knows that we know. Because there's, uh, you know, that power over. There's a lot of that. And it's even more powerful to know without having to prove that we know or demonstrate that we know. And that's that, uh, you know, that there's a real beauty in Sila. Maybe I'll end here. We need to wrap it up so we can do our small groups.
few centuries after the time of the Buddha, there was a, a person who wrote a famous treatise on the uh, of armies, these beautiful qualities of the heart. Let's see if I can put my hand on it here. The perfection of virtue. So for each of the ten paramis, he, he wrote some verses. This is the these are the verses on virtue, on moral sensitivity. The perfection of moral sensitivity or virtue should be thought of, thought about as follows. Even the waters of the Ganges River cannot wash away the stain of hatred, yet the water of virtue is able to do so. Even yellow sandalwood cannot cool the fever of lust, yet virtue is able to remove it. And, and maybe I'll just interrupt. By that I think he means, or this person means, that when I really care about non-harming, then it becomes a more powerful force in my heart than the gratification of sexual desire. It doesn't exactly diminish the sexual desire, it creates a wholesome desire that's much stronger. So that when I'm around somebody, or when any of us are around somebody that we're really attracted to, that's that all operates, you know, that, those sort of energetic systems do what they do. But there's another system operating, which is a really beautiful, powerful, enlivening system of not wanting to cause harm, not wanting to set in motion heavy weight for them or for us or for anybody. So it isn't repressing the sexual desire. It's cultivating, this is the idea of Sila, we're cultivating something very alive, it's a living dynamic, right? It's a, a sensitivity, it's not a static don't. <laughs> it's, it's very alive. And this, uh, this teacher and, I guess, poet, because he's writing in verses, is trying to convey that. Virtue is the unique adornment of good people, surpassing the adornments share cherished by average folk, such as necklaces and earrings. Virtue should be reflected upon as the basis for rapture and joy, as granting immunity from fear of self-reproach, the reproach of others, punishment, and a hellish rebirth, as praised by the wise as the root cause for freedom from remorse, as the basis for security. Virtue surpasses material wealth because thieves cannot confiscate it. And I know that sounds a little like, right? But I think we should really contemplate that. Like, it's nice to have material resources. So it's not, again, it's not like saying, oh, money doesn't matter. But it might be that developing this moral sensitivity matters a lot more to us. Is a source of confidence and security, much as nice as it is to have money in the bank, even better to have developed this momentum where we can trust our heart not to cause harm. There's a little bit more here. 
because it enables one to achieve supreme sovereignty over one's own heart, virtue surpasses the sovereignty of warriors, kings, and priests. Virtue surpasses the achievement of beauty, for it makes one beautiful even to one's enemies. It cannot be vanquished by the adversities of aging and sickness. Since it is the foundation for states of happiness, virtue surpasses such dwellings as palaces and mansions. In accomplishing the difficult task of self-protection, virtue is superior to troops of elephants, chariots, and infantry, as well as such devices as mantras, spells, and blessings, for it depends on oneself and not on others. Esteeming virtue as the foundation of all achievements, as the soil for the origination of all of the Buddha's qualities, the beginning, the chief of all the qualities issuing and awakening. One should guard diligently and thoroughly perfect virtue as a hen guards its eggs. Isn't that sweet? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.